Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Good day to you and welcome to our podcast from the Asset Management and Investors Council, uh, AMIC. Uh, AMIC is the buy side of the International Capital Markets Association. Uh, my name is Bob Parker. Um, I am a senior advisor uh, both to AMIC and ICMA. Um, and I'm very pleased that on this podcast, I am joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Max Castelli from UBS. Uh, Max, on the investment side at uh, UBS, is responsible uh, for their relationships uh, with uh, sovereigns, central banks, um, other uh, supranational and public sector bodies. Uh, and Max is now and has been since the beginning of this year, uh, one of our two co-chairmen on AMIC. In this podcast, we want to review the difficult economic, political and capital market conditions that have prevailed so far in 2022 to analyse the impact on investors and on investor behaviour and also to look at the implications for the asset management industry, not just in the short term, but also to touch um, on some longer term changes um, in our industry. Before I pass over to Max, I'd just like to touch on a number of headwinds um, in our industry and in markets uh, that have occurred so far this year. Um, And, you know, I would uh, list really six uh, headwinds. The first Uh, is the rise in commodity prices. And it's not just due to the uh, war in Ukraine. We saw uh, a surge in demand for commodities at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. So that rise in commodity prices has been compounded uh, by uh, the war in uh, Ukraine. And I think just to sort to quantify that, some of the numbers obviously are sort of particularly alarming. I would... uh, Just mentioned the rise in European gas prices over the last year by more than 230%. uh, The rise in wheat prices by over 80%. And that obviously has significant implications for food price um, inflation. And then in metals markets, one uh, area where Russian supply and sanctions has had a significant effect is the nickel market. Uh, Nickel prices up over 60% over the last year. So headwind number one, the rise in commodity prices. Um, Headwind number two, obviously that has fed uh, into inflation. And we've seen US inflation, for example, rise above 8%, Eurozone inflation above 7%, UK inflation, you know, close to uh, to 9%. Uh, In Asia, inflation is less of a problem, but certainly inflation is significantly above by a large multiple uh, central bank targets and objectives uh, in Europe uh, and the United States. Um, I think, you know, uh, headwind number three um, is that although in the States and Europe, the impact of COVID, which was traumatic on global economies in 2020 and the first half of 2021, that's less of an issue now in the States and Europe, but it is an ongoing problem um, in China and particularly against a background of the Chinese zero COVID policy. And, you know, that clearly, particularly in the second quarter of 2022, has led to a significant slowdown in the Chinese economy. Uh, it has resulted 
in major disruption to supply chains. And, you know, one of the world's largest ports is Shanghai, with Shanghai, a city of 26 million people, largely shut down because of COVID restrictions uh, in April and early May. That obviously had a significant negative effect uh, on the operations in Shanghai and in the industrial area um, around Shanghai. Then, so COVID as sort of headwind number three after inflation and commodity prices, uh, I think sort of headwind number four, slowing growth. And I would just sort of highlight there, you know, the IMF forecasts and the IMF uh, is forecasting global growth this year down to 3.6%. Next year, um, it is forecasting growth for the United States, Europe and Japan only at 2.3%. Um, and for a range of factors, you know, we are seeing a slowdown in growth after the reasonably strong growth numbers that we had in the post-COVID recovery in the States and Europe in 2021. Um, I think, you know, the fifth headwind to look at is obviously monetary tightening. You know, we have now got a very clear message from the Federal Reserve that they have moved from quantitative easing uh, to quantitative tightening. They are raising interest rates. Uh, the last meeting, they raised interest rates by 50 basis points. In Europe, a speech by Mrs. Lagarde recently uh, said that the ECB will move its deposit rate um, from minus 50 basis points to zero by September. They're stopping their asset purchases. Um, and then the final headwind, uh, which many people are not really focusing on, but I think is important, is that whereas in 2020 and 2021, fiscal policy from most countries was very expansionary, with the exception of China and to a less extent Japan, that has now stopped. Um, so, you know, the Eurozone recovery plan is being implemented, but further measures uh, are not planned. Uh, and likewise, in the United States, where fiscal policy um, is gridlocked. So, you know, all of that has led to a rather difficult um, investment environment. And before I pass to Max, I just mentioned, um, I think, sort of two statistics. Uh, the first statistic is if we look at bond markets year to date, uh, the investment grade S&P bond index, uh, you know, is down 12.7% uh, in equity markets year to date. Uh, you know, the S&P is down close to 17% and the euro stocks down close to 15%. So it's not been a year uh, where uh, bonds have outperformed, equities have underperformed. You know, everything has come down very significantly. The one exception, obviously, which I mentioned earlier, uh, is commodities. So it has been a very challenging year so far for investors. Uh, now, let me pass on to Max uh, to add some comments to that, uh, to give more detail, but more interestingly, uh, to go through uh, some of the projections that Max and his colleagues have been working on for investment returns in the future. Max, over to you, please. Thank you very much, uh, Bob, and uh, once again, uh, thanks for uh, the invitation to this podcast. Definitely, I think you, you set uh, the scene very well by identifying the, the driver of what's happening in the markets. And uh, let, me, let me start by saying, of course, that when we were uh, into 2021, uh, for most of the year, it, looks, uh, it looked very different. In fact, uh, the global economy was recovering. 
from the pandemic uh, recession at a very rapid rate. Uh, stock market uh, were rising to all-time high. Interest rates uh, for most of the year, they were still at a very low level. And uh, despite the pandemic was not over uh, yet, there was a growing uh, conviction that the fight uh, against the virus uh, could be won thanks to the vaccine in, uh, in, in most parts of the world. As you mentioned, one year later, uh, we are in a very different world. Actually, if you look at the, the pandemic has actually been put uh, under control, at least uh, with some exception, but uh, overall, the situation looks much better, but new challenges have emerged. In particular, let me point out the supply side disruption, which was created by the pandemic, coupled with a massive increase in global demand has basically propelled inflation rates to levels that we have not seen for many decades. Then, of course, the war in Ukraine has further exacerbated the inflation problem because further disruption in the global value chain and, as Bob, you pointed out, the big jump in, in commodity and food price. In this environment, the Fed has been forced to tighten monetary condition pretty aggressively and uh, as well uh, reverse the quantitative easing uh, sooner than expected. And as you, as you pointed out, over central banks are following suits. Uh, in terms of markets, uh, the, the impact has been uh, of this, uh, the impact of these geopolitical events and the worsening global economic and financial outlook has been uh, pretty strong. You already mentioned the impact on, uh, on the fixed income side. Uh, rising interest rate uh, have uh, had uh, a big impact. For instance, uh, you mentioned some statistics, but the Bloomberg uh, US ag is down by more than 10%. And this is actually the worst start to the year on record since the calculation started in uh, 1989. Just for context, the second worst year was actually in uh, 1994 with uh, uh, minus 5%. At the same time, the equity market has been hit very hard. Actually, this is, the, once again, just to put some statistics, the second worst start of the year on record. And of course, the tech stocks, which have been the, the stellar performer in the previous year, have, have been hit even harder. Now, the, 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 the drop in, the, in markets have hit particularly hard the so-called uh, balanced portfolio, where uh, investors basically split their investment across uh, listed equities and fixed income. And that's something that uh, I, I, will come back, uh, I will come back in a moment. In terms of uh, the impact on clients, I will refer to the clients that I follow more closely, which are uh, um, central banks, so-called reserve manager and sovereign wealth funds. And just to put uh, things into perspective, central banks, which, as you know, are very relatively conservative investors, the most conservative portfolio of central banks, which is invested into cash and the short duration developed market bonds, is down by around 1%. It's not a big number, but uh, we should point out that this type of portfolio have not suffered losses for the last 30 years. So this is the first time that investors experience losses on, uh, on, on the most conservative portfolio. And then, of course, for the most diversified uh, sovereign institution, uh, the losses uh, year to date uh, at the end of uh, April, that's the data I have in terms of my, the portfolios I monitor, they are down by between, uh, let's say, 8 uh, up to 10%, depending uh, what type of uh, 
of uh, investor you are. So definitely a, a very bad start of the year, which of course uh, has, uh, has been, uh, I would say, a wake-up call for, uh, for many investors. To a large extent, in the conversation that I have with clients, we mainly talk about, uh, let's say, not just a cyclical type of adjustment, but rather a sort of a regime change. And this, uh, this definition, I, I often heard it, basically that we are moving in a world which is going to be very different from the one that we have been experiencing for quite a long time, at least since the great financial crisis. One aspect, of course, that is very much in the, in the mindset of investors is what you already pointed out, that both fixed income and equity have come down. And this is, of course, a reflection of uh, the rising interest rate environment and the worsening uh, economic outlook. What is interesting is that uh, actually, according to our research, the so-called positive correlation between uh, fixed income and equity is not unprecedented. But there is an important point, which is that normally this correlation, uh, which is uh, negative, tend to turn positive when the inflation rate rises above a certain level which we estimate at around 2.5%. So this means that if inflation remains higher than what has been the case so far, of course, this could be something that investors will be confronted with in the future in the sense that the volatility of the portfolio will increase because there will not be that negative correlation between these two important asset classes which normally provides some cushion during period, for instance, of weakening equity price, fixed income has always provided some cushion. This will has not happened year to date in 2022, and it might well be that we will live in that type of situation for a more prolonged period of time. That's definitely something that it is in the mindset of investors. So definitely a very difficult year, a large impact also from an historical perspective, but of course, these also change a little bit the medium and long term in terms of what we call the capital market expectation, or if you want, in a more sort of a plain language, the expected return across different asset classes. If you want, I can, I can touch upon that, Bob, and give a little bit of flavor of what we expect, what we currently see based on our estimates. In terms um, yes, please, of, if you could. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So uh, when we look at, uh, uh, at the capital market expectation, we, we of course, think in terms of scenarios. Uh, and uh, I think this is very important because one aspect that I would, uh, would like to stress is that uh, we live in very uncertain time. Of course, uh, we are already starting to see the impact of all these events on the portfolio of clients. But I think there is also very much uncertainty with regards to the future. And this, of course, creates a lot of uh, concern. Uh, the uncertainty, particularly, I think, in regards to the inflation outlook. As you know, we were coming from a period in 2021 where the prevailing view was that the rise in inflation was transitory, largely reflecting the sort of distortion created by the pandemic in terms of demand and supply. As we move into 2022, there is a growing concern that actually 
this my the, the the rising inflation is not transitory but would be more uh, uh, prolonged and uh, and that's why i refer sometimes to this as a, a regime change In, so when i think about scenarios we we build up uh, four different scenarios the first one, uh, which is I would consider, I don't like the word the baseline, but let's say maybe this is a more benign scenario, which we call a soft landing, where basically the global economy over the next five years will eventually go back to the growth rate that was experienced pre-COVID. And also inflation, despite remaining a little bit higher than what we had in the past, will go very close to the 2% target of uh, central banks. And of course, in this type of, uh, of the scenario, interest rate will, of course, continue rising. Uh, we estimate, for instance, the cash rate to increase by uh, around 2.6% in five years. Global also long government yield, so long-term yields uh, as an average of advanced economies will rise by another 1%. So definitely a different environment in terms of interest rate, but uh, for sure not uh, a dramatic uh, uh, increase uh, interest rate when you look at from a long-term perspective. I believe that's the type of environment that the market eventually is uh, at the moment focused on. And then the question is, what would happen to the uh, asset classes in this type of environment? And here, of course, the market movements that we experience here to date have important implications. And let me point out the three main uh, one. The first one is that uh, in the fixed income space, there might be more pain uh, in the short term as interest rate rise, but it is also true that as we move and take a more medium long-term perspective, uh, over the next five years, we actually expect the global investment grade bonds, uh, here I'm giving number hedge in dollar, to actually reach a return in this scenario of nearly 3%. Now, this is a substantial jump compared to the, where we were before, because as you know, we are coming from a period of low yields, or what sometimes was referred to low forever. So already being in an environment where a fixed income can generate a return over close to 3% for the investment grade bonds is a substantial change, and I would say an improvement compared to where we were. The second point is that, uh, of course, also cash is coming up for, from a return which was very close to zero for a prolonged period of time. Actually, we expect cash to generate a return again of 2.6%. So this means, in a, in a nutshell, that if inflation actually converges close to the 2% over the medium long term, fixed income will provide the capital protection. And this is a very important uh, change compared to the pre-COVID situation. The second point is that, of course, the correction in equities has also uh, uh, reduced, uh, improved evaluation. So we actually expect the equity in this scenario of rising uh, to a return on average of around 7.5%, which is definitely better than what has been the case for most of last year when equity prices were at all-time high and valuation were very expensive. The last point I would like to make is that, uh, uh, of course, the, uh, the, the role of alternatives remain really, really important because the expected returns that we see across the different alternative asset classes oscillate between 4 or 5% for hedge funds in real estate, up to 9% for private equity, and also private credits actually provide quite a substantial return. So what I'm trying to say is that in this uh, soft landing scenario, 
should of course uh, the fed manage to, to 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 achieve this goal actually there there is uh, some pain probably still in the cards but as well there are some important uh, long term uh, uh, change which uh, provide some important uh, uh, points for investor who have a long term view now, I mentioned the scenario, and uh, we'll conclude here. The over three scenario that we look is one instead of uh, uh, what we call a stagnation, which is basically a scenario where uh, the Fed will not manage to avoid a recession in the US. Global growth would go down uh, uh, in terms of uh, compared to the uh, soft landing scenario. Inflation as well would converge much faster towards the 2% level. And of course, in this type of environment, uh, uh, interest rates would remain, uh, would go back basically to the very low level that we experienced uh, uh, before uh, the, the start of the rise in inflation. In, uh, this is, of course, a scenario very negative for equity. Uh, which would uh, definitely uh, uh, underperform, actually provide the negative returns on average over the next five years. What I think is interesting are the two inflationary scenarios that we also consider, which we call a stagflation. I would say this is what the market really fears, because that would be an environment where inflation instead uh, remains very high. This would mean that the Fed is forced and other central banks are forced to tighten uh, uh, monetary condition more aggressively. The rates would grow by uh, more than 3% over this period. And also the long-term rates would jump pretty substantially. And this is, of course, an environment very difficult for investors because, uh, as I mentioned, not only return on fixed income would continue to remain very negative simply because the rising yields would impact for a prolonged period of time the fixed income market, but as well for the equity market because growth would be very low and maybe a sort of a recession could be avoided, but still it would feel like a recession in many parts of the world if we go back into, into such an environment. In this type of environment, many asset classes do very bad. I mentioned already the negative, the negative correlation between stock and bonds, which would turn positive. And actually, the asset class which perform relatively well in this type of environment are commodities and gold. And that's why I think we are seeing, as we speak, a growing interest of investor for this asset class, which not only is doing well in the current environment short term, but also probably represent an edge against inflation should eventually the stagflation scenario materialize over the next five years. Maybe I stop here for the moment, and of course, we can go deeper on, on the topics that I touch upon. Uh, Max, thank you very much indeed. And um, I think sort of just to sum up, um, you know, a central case scenario of trend weaker growth, not necessarily an outright recession, but uh, you know, low growth figures, and that is consistent with the numbers coming from uh, the IMF and a number of other official organizations. And, you know, I think the interesting question uh, is when or if uh, the current elevated inflation numbers start to decelerate. Um, and that is going to be really very much a focus for in investor attention uh, in the second half of this year. Now, I think let, let's move on to... Um, 
just a number of longer term issues. And, uh, you know, before we talk about a number of factors which impact the asset management industry uh, in, in directly, uh, let's talk about some longer term, broader issues. And, you know, Max and I both have got sort of, I hope, interesting views on these. And uh, I think, you know, the first one to touch on is obviously globalization. Um, as we talk, we have the World Economic Forum at Davos uh, and the reversal of globalization and the implications of that uh, is obviously a key topic um, for uh, the delegates at uh, the World Economic Forum. Um, and I think we have to recognize that the period of globalization, um, which really started, I would argue, uh, in the 1980s, uh, in recent years has started to reverse. I don't like the phrase, but we're seeing that in this uh, this word called onshoring. Um, so, you know, whereas American companies might have used China as a major manufacturing base, they are now moving back either to the States or to markets close to the United States. So, for example, you know, Mexico as a less expensive manufacturing base close to the United States is a clear beneficiary. You know, likewise, you know, we are seeing European companies move operations back into the European Union. That obviously has implications for uh, the future of manufacturing in the UK outside the European Union and whether the UK uh, can benefit or uh, be adversely affected by this uh, trend away from globalisation. And, you know, clearly there are winners and losers here. I think it's interesting that China at the moment going through you know, a long internal debate about uh, the future development of its economy is very much focusing on moving from an economic model of export driven to very much focusing on uh, its regional economic strength and also the development of sectors in the Chinese economy, which are very much focused on domestic activity as opposed to international export led activity. So, Max, please, uh, please make your comments. But uh, obviously, the reversal of globalization does have implications for investment strategy. And clearly, there are winners and losers from this change in, uh, in what we're seeing in the global economy. So, Max, over to you, please. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic, uh, globalization, and the debate uh, is wild. As, uh, as they say, you read everyday news uh, uh, about uh, what's happening uh, in terms of globalization. Maybe just uh, uh, to put things into context, we also we need to point out that globalization was slowing down already before the events that unfolded uh, in the last few years, including uh, the pandemic and the and then the geopolitical uh, events in Ukraine. So we are actually experiencing. Uh, 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 a slowdown in globalization, which uh, uh, became already apparent in the years following the great financial crisis. Data points are the slowdown in trade intensity of growth, uh, as measured, for instance, by the ratio between international trade and, um, and the global uh, GDP. And this, of course, was driven by multiple factors. Uh, some of them are very much related, for instance, to technology which has in some way reduced uh, the need for uh, 
manufactured goods simply because we're moving more into the sort of intangible type of economy where you need to move less things around the world and many things are more local. And uh, as well, there were some uh, political uh, drivers uh, from the Trump election and the start of the trade war with China, the imposition of sanction. Overall, let's say the view was that we were coming from what sometimes has been labeled as a period of hyper-globalization, the one that you mentioned starting in the 80s. So in some way, a slowdown for all these reasons that I mentioned was in some way in the cards. Probably the event like the pandemic and more recently the conflict in Ukraine has actually created even more concern that rather than just having a slowdown, in a trend which has been very powerful in the last few decades, we might even experience a reversal. Now, the big question for me would be, first of all, when we talk about reverse of globalization, what type of world, what type of global economy are we talking about? And here, probably, I think there is a, a distinction to be made between two potential outcomes. So the first one, which I would consider more benign and in some way also related to the long-term trend that I mentioned, is the shift from, uh, sorry, towards a, a multipolar world in the sense that uh, the rise of China and over emerging market uh, has already changed the structure of the global economy. So having a world where you have uh, different regions uh, competing between them and also different currencies eventually competing between them in some way would be a sort of a natural development reflecting the underlying change in the global economy. This means also as well that maybe you have less global trade, the more regional trade type of growth, and as well that uh, investments and um, financial markets tend to be more regional, uh, regionally integrated rather than you know, from a purely global perspective. The risk, I think, is that instead under the uh, impulse of some, uh, of some of these events, for instance, uh, the recent uh, uh, war in Ukraine and the sanctions which have been imposed uh, on Russia, and eventually as well uh, the threat that more sanctions could eventually erupt in case that over geopolitical events uh, will happen in the future, is that we might be moving into what sometimes I label as a more fragmented world. And this uh, fragmented world, of course, it would be a different type of world we have been used to live in because there would be more barriers to investments, there would be more barriers to the movement of people, and last but not least, there would be more barriers to the movement of uh, capital across the jurisdiction. And uh, this is something that, of course, uh, has implications for investors. I think investors over the last uh, decades have really taken a global view. They look at the world as one big market where they need to decide where to put their investments. A fragmented world from both uh, an economic and a financial perspective would probably require a, a different approach in terms of investment depending on where you're investing. There will be countries which are more willing to receive, for instance, investment in a sensitive sector like technology, while over instead where that a little bit more complicated. So. Definitely, there is, a, there is in the market, and, and you also heard in Davos these days, uh, and also the IMF sounded the alarm uh, recently in his uh, <clears throat> remarks uh, about the economic and uh, financial outlook, uh, which was presented just a few weeks ago, that in the end, the fragmentation could also lead to uh, lower growth, 
simply because you have a loss in efficiency by being forced to uh, onshoring some of the activities which might be be more economically uh, viable in our jurisdiction, but as well there is a, a final link which I would like to stress, which is with inflation. There is a view, and I tend to share the view that globalization has been a strong driver of the low inflation environment we have been here, we have been here for a very long time. A, def, a reversal of that trend and a more fragmented world probably would also mean that uh, inflation would be higher than than before which is also something definitely being looked very closely by central banks as they think about the monetary policy. Uh, Max, let's just move on to one other big topic for the asset management industry, and obviously that is ESG and sustainability. Um, and you know, clearly we have seen a major flow of investor capital uh, into ESG funds, uh, there has been a lot of work being done by AMIC, ICMA, um, and in particularly in liaising with uh, the European Commission on this topic. Uh, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, as we talk, uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, is giving a talk at uh, Davos, the World Economic Forum, uh, where she is focusing very much on the problems uh, of the global food crisis. And I referred earlier on to the jump in, uh, in wheat prices. But, you know, in my own view, it is, it's, this is absolutely crystal clear. I don't think there is any debate, which is that the asset management industry, um, you know, has to uh, address investment strategies uh, which, are, uh, which are focused on the problems of climate change, uh, my own view is that ESG is vitally important to, to our industry and our clients uh, demand it. But uh, Max, let me just pass over to you and uh, sort of get perhaps not wearing your AMIC hat, but wearing your UBS hat and hear what your, what your clients are saying about this. Uh, yes, thank you, Bob. It's a very good question. And uh, I think the recent event uh, have implication for this trend. Basically, the, 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 what happened with the, the, particularly with the recent event in, uh, in Ukraine is that uh, energy security and the energy transformation have basically become the two sides of the same coin. And uh, for instance, the least reason why Europe uh, should speed up the energy transition is now longer than it was uh, before this event uh, unfolded. In fact, uh, this is a very interesting debate that we are witnessing once uh, energy security and energy transformation become uh, interlinked. There is a big question about what is the implication for for, uh, the energy transition, which as you know, in the context of ESG is uh, one of the most important part uh, of the conversation. On one end, one can see that the green agenda could get a boost from the national security agenda simply because it will facilitate the mobilization of capital for green investments because this also matches very well the idea of having more independence in terms of energy security. 
but uh, at the same time, uh, there is also what uh, sometimes I, I call the tragedy uh, of the horizon. So in the long term, it's pretty obvious that there is no incompatibility between energy security and energy trans transformation or energy transition. And actually, the two trends reinforce each other. However, there is definitely a, a risk in the short term that given the impact of uh, uh, rising uh, fossil fuel price, and the need to find energy sources could well be that the security agenda basically could dictate the short-term action of governments that could bring some setbacks for the green agenda. We have several examples out there of these, for instance, more extensive use of coal fire plants or, for instance, the easing of carbon emission limits in order to stimulate sector of the economy that are affected by high energy price. Uh, another one, which is, I think is also very important, is that if the world is marked by deglobalization, uh, regionalization, and uh, block building, the, the setting, for instance, of international environmental standards or cooperation between international bodies could be impaired. Now, the, my view is that probably in the short term, we are going to see a little bit of that. But over the long term, I believe the ESG trends and including, of course, the energy transition trends remain intact. That's our view. That's what I hear from investors, that in the end, there is, no, there is no way back from the sustainability trends. I think this is very important because we believe this is transformational. And I believe that investors will not move away from this trend because of this short-term problem surrounding currently the, the energy sector, in particular in terms of price. So definitely a trend that will continue and will remain strong in the years to come. Um, before we uh, wrap up and conclude, uh, Max, let's just touch on two topics which are relevant to the asset management industry. The, the first one is just the ongoing debate, which I don't think is going to go away, um, between passive investing and active um, investment management. Uh, and then just the second topic, which is the push that we have seen in capital allocation uh, to illiquid assets, you know, such as uh, real estate, private equity, infrastructure, uh, and a number of other uh, asset classes which are less correlated uh, with fixed income and equities. Um, and Max, please, please jump in with your comments. But uh, just on the passive versus active debate, I would just comment that I don't think this argument um, is going to go away. I think we're still going to be debating this in, in 10 years time. Um, you know, my only observation is that the less liquid markets are, the stronger the case for active management, uh, you know, whether that's in illiquid asset classes such as infrastructure, uh, whether it is in emerging markets, small cap or private equity, there I think the case for active management is very powerful. Uh, the case for passive management, um, I think, is, is quite pronounced uh, in very efficient, liquid, large markets, um, you know, such as, for example, uh, the US equity markets and perhaps uh, you know, the Eurozone equity markets as well. Um, I think you know, the other observation I would make is that 
if you believe that fixed income is largely a cyclical exercise, and you know we go through periods of monetary tightening and monetary easing and periods of low inflation, and then at the moment, high inflation, then the case for passive management in fixed income, I frankly fail to understand that. So you know, that's, that's my comment on passive versus active, and I think liquidity and market size is critical there. Just on illiquid assets, obviously illiquid assets have benefited from central bank easing policies. Uh, I think the environment now is going to become tougher, you know, with the Fed moving from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening uh, and the ECB uh, stopping its asset purchases uh, and central banks around the world raising interest rates, not just the Fed and uh, uh, the UK and the Eurozone, but also you know a number of emerging market central banks, uh, then obviously the liquidity environment remains difficult. So I think the easy returns that we've had in illiquid assets, uh, that environment becomes more difficult. But you know, before I wrap up, Max, just over to you for you know some comments on those two sub- topics and also perhaps some concluding comments from you. Thank you very much, Bob. Yes, on the passive active, very quickly, I, I will use the words that you used uh, before, that uh, we are moving in an environment where there will be winners and losers. And I think this means uh, both in terms of countries, which will perform uh, better or worse, in terms of sectors, think about in the equity market uh, value versus growth, uh, uh, but all, and of course in terms of uh, corporates as well. So this just to say that uh, we are definitely coming from a period where given the monetary very loose condition that we experienced for a prolonged period of time, a beta type of uh, investment approach has actually paid very well because everything actually went up. As we move into this new regime, where uh, some asset price will go up, some over will go down, and I think there will be definitely more scope for uh, active asset manager to uh, generate alpha. And actually, we have been observing uh, a growing interest of investors, in particular institutional large investors, who have been, of course, uh, investing the bulk of their assets into passive strategy, becoming uh, uh, particularly uh, more uh, focused on active strategy. As you mentioned before, there are markets where going passive probably makes sense, like for instance, developed market equities. But definitely, if you look at sectors like emerging markets, for instance, or China, actually our recommendation has always been to go active because there is much room for us as a manager to generate alpha. In terms of uh, uh, the alternative asset classes, well, there is a link as well in the sense that alternative asset classes are, uh, by definition, active uh, type of investment strategies, in the sense that uh, there is uh, no a sort of a passive equivalent in the alternative asset market. So definitely, in, uh, asset manager investing across real estate or uh, uh, private equity or infrastructure, they need to select the investment uh, very, very uh, uh, actively. So from that point of view, the alternative asset classes for me, despite the headwinds, which are mainly related, of course, to the rising environments, because once the cash rate, uh, the cash return goes from zero to 3%, of course, uh, this is also a game changer for these asset classes. 
but I think that they will continue in these rising trends that we've been experiencing so far for three reasons, basically. First of all, because they provide an important source of diversification from listed market, which, as I mentioned to you, if we move into a positive correlation between listed fixed income and equity, actually the alternative asset classes can provide an important source of diversification. Second, there is the question, of course, of uh, uh, the inflation edge. We know that uh, real estate and infrastructure can provide an important uh, edge. And, and thirdly, I would actually like to mention that uh, if you, uh, when we talk about long-term trends like uh, technology or sustainability, very often uh, in order to have uh, a, a meaningful impact, for instance, think about green infrastructure, the alternative asset classes is the only route which allow you to really materially have an impact, for instance, on, on climate change. So I believe uh, definitely alternative asset classes will feel uh, the impact of rising yields, but I think the trends that I see among investors will remain intact over the medium long term. Max, many thanks indeed. And, um, you know, let me just um, sort of wrap up um, the main themes of this podcast. Um, and I hope the points that we have made have been clear um, and useful for everybody uh, listening in. But I think just to summarize, uh, you know, 2022 has seen major headwinds for investors. Uh, we have seen significant negative returns being generated uh, in most fixed income and equity markets. Um, and, you know, the only positive returns uh, have been primarily in markets which are linked or correlated uh, with commodity prices and commodity prices are obviously still very elevated. Um, in terms of the outlook, um, you know, the central case uh, in line with you know, a number of official organizations' forecasts, um, I think has to be one of a slowdown in growth. Uh, an outright global recession is still very much an outside risk, but a period of moderate to low growth uh, is the central case. And probably with the current level of elevated inflation, starting to ease off, notably in Asia and, uh, and the European Union uh, in the second half of this year, uh, and then in 2023 uh, in the United States and eventually uh, in the UK. So a move from high inflation back to a lower levels um, of inflation. Um, therefore, you know, one can argue that the big sell-off that we've seen in fixed income markets and notably in corporate bond markets uh, will probably stabilise um, uh, in the second half of 2022 and in early 2023, um, and uh, that we will see positive returns being generated again in fixed income markets over the next one to three years, um, you know, after this very difficult 2022. Uh, in equity markets, I think the theme is going to be one of investors being defensive, focusing on sectors and companies and markets uh, which perform well in a low growth era. So you know, defensive value sectors um, are going to attract uh, capital flows. Um, in terms of longer term themes, um, the asset management industry, um, admittedly, Max and I are biased, but we actually think the asset management industry 
over the last two years has navigated the shocks you know, of COVID, war in Ukraine, economic shocks such as the rise in commodity prices. I think the asset management industry has managed to navigate these shocks uh, reasonably well. Um, and it has obviously been very difficult to generate uh, positive returns uh, for our investors and uh, clients. Um, but you know, the uh, shocks have been, I don't like using the word unprecedented, but this series of shocks clearly uh, have not seen much of a uh, historic precedent. And longer term themes, um, I would come back to the topics we touched on, globalization, reversing sustainability and ESG are important longer term changes. And, you know, likewise, you know, the role of passive versus active investment uh, and illiquid asset classes will, those topics will continue to dominate our industry. So on that, Max and I are going to conclude there. Um, and, you know, if anybody has any questions or wants to follow up, uh, please contact us, um, you know, via uh, the AMIC and ICMA uh, websites. Um, and, you know, we look forward to continuing this discussion with everybody. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.